Section thirty five of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Ravenna. I write these lines on a cold Swiss mountain top, shut in by an intense white mist from any glimpse of the underworld of lovely Italy. But as I jotted down the other day in the ancient capital of Honorius and Theodoric the few notes of which they are composed, I let the original date stand for local colour's sake. Its mere look as I transcribe it emits a grateful glow in the midst of the alpine rawness and gives the depressed imagination something tangible to grasp while awaiting the return of fine weather. For Ravenna was glowing less than a week since, as I edged along the narrow strip of shadow binding one side of the empty white streets. After a long chill spring, the summer this year descended upon Italy with a sudden jump and an ominous hot breath. I stole away from Florence in the night and even on top of the Apennines, under the dull starlight and in the rushing train, one could but sit and pant perspiringly. At Bologna I found a festa, or rather two festas, a civil and a religious, going on in mutual mistrust and disparagement. The civil, that of the Statuto, was the one fully national Italian holiday, as by law established, the day that signalises everywhere over the land at once its achieved and hard-won unification. The religious was a jubilee of certain local churches. The latter is observed by the Bolognese parishes in couples and comes round for each couple but once in ten years, an arrangement by which the faithful at large ensure themselves a liberal recurrence of expensive processions. It was not my business to distinguish the sheep from the goats, the pious from the profane, the prayers from the scoffers. It was enough that melting together under the scorching sun, they filled the admirably solid city with a flood of spectacular life. The combination at one point was really dramatic. While a long procession of priests and young virgins in white veils bearing tapers marshalled itself in one of the streets, a review of the king's troops went forward outside the town. On its return, a large detachment of cavalry passed across the space where the incense was burning, the pictured banners swaying and the litany being droned, and checked the advance of the little ecclesiastical troop. The long vista of the street between the porticoes was festooned with garlands and scarlet and tinsel. The robes and crosses and canopies of the priests, the clouds of perfumed smoke and the white veils of the maidens were resolved by the hot bright air into a gorgeous medley of colour, across which the mounted soldiers rattled and flashed as if it had been a conquering army trampling on an embassy of propitiation. It was to tell the truth, the first time an Italian festa had really exhibited to my eyes 
the genial glow and the romantic particulars promised by song and story, and I confess that those eyes found more pleasure in it than they were to find an hour later in the picturesque on canvas, as one observes it in the Pinacoteca, I found myself scowling most unmercifully at Guido and Dominichino. For Ravenna, however, I had nothing but smiles. Grave, reflective, philosophic smiles, I hasten to add, such as accord with the historic dignity not to say the mortal, sunny sadness of the place. I arrived there in the evening before even at drowsy Ravenna, the fester of the Statuto had altogether put itself to bed. I immediately strolled forth from the inn and found it sitting up a while longer on the piazza, chiefly at the cafe door, listening to the band of the garrison by the light of a dozen or so feeble tapers fastened along the front of the palace of government. Before long, however, it had dispersed and departed, and I was left alone with the grey illumination and with an affable citizen, whose testimony as to the manners and customs of Ravenna I had aspired to obtain. I had, borrowing confidence from prompt observation, suggested deferentially that it wasn't the liveliest place in the world, and my friend admitted that it was in fact not a seat of ardent life. But had I seen the Corso? Without seeing the Corso, one didn't exhaust the possibilities. The Corso of Ravenna on a hot summer night had an air of surprising seclusion and repose. Here and there, in an upper closed window, glimmered a light. My companion's footsteps and my own were the only sounds. Not a creature was within sight. The suffocating air helped me to believe for a moment that I walked in the Italy of Boccaccio, hand in hand with the plague, through a city which had lost half its population by pestilence and the other half by flight. I turned back into my inn, profoundly satisfied. This, at last, was the old-world dullness of a prime distillation. This, at last, was antiquity, history, repose. The impression was largely confirmed and enriched on the following day, but it was obliged at an early stage of my visit to give precedence to another, the lively perception, namely, of the thinness of my saturation with Gibbon, and the other sources of legend. At Ravenna, the waiter at the cafe and the coachman who drives you to the pine forest allude to Galliflachidia and Justinian as to any attractive topic of the hour. Wherever you turn, you encounter some fond appeal to your historic presence of mind. For myself, I could only attune my spirit vaguely to so ponderous a challenge. I could only feel... I was breathing an air of prodigious records and relics. I conned my guidebook and looked up at the great mosaics, and then fumbled at poor Murray again for some intense alight on the court of Justinian. But I can imagine that to a visitor more intimate with the originals of the various great almond-eyed mosaic portraits in the vaults of the churches, 
these extremely curious works of art may have a really formidable interest. I found in the place at large by daylight the look of a vast, straggling, depopulated village. The streets, with hardly an exception, are grass-grown, and though I walked about all day, I failed to encounter a single wheeled vehicle. I remember no shop but the little establishment of an urbane photographer whose views of the Pineta, the great legendary pine forest just without the town, gave me an irresistible desire to seek that refuge. There was no architecture to speak of, and though there are a great many large domiciles with aristocratic names, they stand cracking and baking in the sun in no very comfortable fashion. The houses have for the most part an all but rustic rudeness. They are low and featureless and shabby, as well as interspersed with high garden walls over which the long arms of tangled vines hang motionless into the stagnant streets. Here and there in all this dreariness, in some particularly silent and grassy corner, rises an old brick church with a front more or less spoiled by cheap modernization and the strange cylindrical campanile pierced with small arched windows and extremely suggestive of the fifth century these churches constitute the palpable interest of ravenna and their own principal interest after thirteen centuries of well-intentioned spoliation resides in their unequalled collection of early Christian mosaics. It is an interest simple, as who should say, almost to harshness, and leads one's attention along a straight and narrow way. There are older churches in Rome, and churches which, looked at as museums, are more variously and richly informing. But in Rome you stumble at every step on some curious pagan memorial, often beautiful enough to make your thoughts wander far from the strange, stiff, primitive Christian forms. Ravenna, on the other hand, began with the church, and all her monuments and relics are harmoniously rigid. By the middle of the first century she possessed an exemplary saint, Apollinaris, a disciple of Peter, to whom her two finest places of worship are dedicated. It was to one of these, jocosely entitled The New, that I first directed my steps. I lingered outside a while and looked at the great red barrel-shaped bell towers, so rusty, so crumbling, so archaic, and yet so resolute to ring in another century or two and then went in to the coolness, the shining marble columns, the queer old sculptured slabs and sarcophagi, and the long mosaics that scintillated under the roof along the wall of the nave. San Apollinare Nuovo, like most of its companions, is a magazine of early Christian odds and ends, fragments of yellow marble encrusted with quaint sculptured emblems of primitive dogma, great rough troughs containing the bones of old bishops, episcopal chairs 
with the marble worn narrow by centuries of pressure from the solid episcopal person slabs from the fronts of old pulpits covered with carven hieroglyphics of an almost egyptian abstruseness lambs and stags and fishes and beasts of theological affinities even less apparent upon all these strange things the strange figures in the great mosaic panorama look down with coloured cheeks and staring eyes lifelike enough to speak to you and answer your wonderment and tell you in bad latin of the decadence that it was in such and such a fashion they believed and worshipped first on each side near the door are houses and ships and various old landmarks of ravenna then begins a long procession on one side of twenty-two white-robed virgins and three obsequious magi terminating in a throne bearing the madonna and child surrounded by four angels on the other side of an equal number of male saints twenty-five that is holding crowns in their hands and leading to a saviour enthroned between angels of singular expressiveness what it is these long slim seraphs express i cannot quite say but they have an odd knowing sidelong look out of the narrow ovals of their eyes which though not without sweetness would certainly make me murmur a defensive prayer or so for i to find myself alone in the church towards dusk all this work is of the latter part of the sixth century and brilliantly preserved the gold backgrounds twinkle as if they had been inserted yesterday and here and there a figure is executed almost too much in the modern manner to be interesting for the charm of mosaic work is to my sense confined altogether to the infancy of the art the great christ in the series of which i speak is quite an elaborate picture and yet he retains enough of the orthodox stiffness to make him impressive in the simpler elder sense he is clad in a purple robe even as an emperor his hair and beard are artfully curled his eyebrows arched his complexion brilliant his whole aspect such a one as the popular mind may have attributed to honorius or valentinian it is all very byzantine and yet i found in it much of that interest which is inseparable to a facile imagination from all early representations of our lord practically they are no more authentic than the more or less plausible inventions of airy sheffer and holman hunt in spite of which they borrow a certain value factitious perhaps but irresistible from the mere fact that they are twelve or thirteen centuries less distant from the original it is something that this was the way the people in the sixth century imagined jesus to have looked the image has suffered by so many the fewer accretions the great purple-robed monarch on the wall of ravenna is at least a very potent and positive christ and the only objection i have to make to him is that though in this character he must have had a full apportionment of divine foreknowledge he betrays no apprehension of dr channing and monsieur renan 
If one's preference lies for distinctness' sake between the old plainness and the modern fantasy, one must admit that the plainness has here a very grand outline. I spent the rest of the morning in charmed transition between the hot yellow streets and the cool grey interiors of the churches. The greyness everywhere was lighted up by the scintillation on vault and entablature of mosaics more or less archaic but always brilliant and elaborate. And everywhere too by the same deep amaze of the fact that while centuries had worn themselves away and empires risen and fallen, these little cubes of coloured glass had stuck in their allotted places and kept their freshness. I have no space for a list of the various shrines so distinguished, and to tell the truth, my memory of them has already become a very generalised and undiscriminated record. The total aspect of the place its sepulchral stillness, its absorbing perfume of evanescence and decay and mortality, confounds the distinctions and blurs the details. The cathedral, which is vast and high, has been excessively modernised, and was being still more so by a lavish application of tinsel and cotton velvet, in preparation for the centenary feast of St. Apollinaris, which befalls next month. Things on this occasion are to be done handsomely, and a fair Avenise informed me that a single family had contributed 3,000 francs towards a month's vesper music. It seemed to me hereupon that I should like in the August twilight to wander into the quiet nave of San Apollinare, and look up at the great mosaics through the resonance of some fine chanting. I remember distinctly enough, however, the tall basilica of San Vitale, of octagonal shape, like an exchange or custom house, modelled, I believe, upon the Saint Sophia at Constantinople. It has a great span of height and a great solemnity, as well as a choir, densely pictured over on arch and apse, with mosaics of the time of Justinian. These are regular pictures, full of movement, gesture and perspective, just enough sobered in hue by time to bring home the remoteness. In the middle of the church, under the great dome, sat an artist, whom I envied, making, at an effective angle, a study of the choir and its broken lights, its decorated altar, and its encrusted twinkling walls. The picture, when finished, will hang, I suppose, on the library wall of some person of taste. But even if it is much better than is probable, I didn't look at it, all his taste won't tell the owner unless he has been there, in just what a soundless, mouldering, out-of-the-way corner of old Italy it was painted. An even better place for an artist fond of dusky architectural nooks, except that here the dusk is excessive and he would hardly be able to tell his green from his red, is the extraordinary little church of Sant'Inazaro e Celso, otherwise known as 
the mausoleum of Galapagina. This is perhaps on the whole the spot in Ravenna where the impression is of most sovereign authority and most thrilling force. It consists of a narrow, low-browed cave shaped like a Latin cross, every inch of which, except the floor, is covered with dense symbolic mosaics. Before you, and on each side, through the thick brown light, loom three enormous barbaric sarcophagi, containing the remains of potentates of the lower empire. It is as if history had burrowed underground to escape from research, and you had fairly run it to earth. On the right lie the ashes of the Emperor Honorius, and in the middle those of his sister, Galla Placidia, a lady who, I believe, had great adventures. On the other side rest the bones of Constantius III. The place might be a small, natural grotto lined with glimmering mineral substances, and there is something quite tremendous in being shut up so closely with these three imperial ghosts. The shadow of the great Roman name broods upon the huge sepulchres and abides forever within the narrow walls. But still other memories hang about than those of primitive bishops and degenerate emperors. Byron lived here, and Dante died here, and the tomb of the one poet and the dwelling of the other are among the advertised appeals. The grave of Dante, it must be said, is anything but Dantesque, and the whole precinct is disposed with that odd vulgarity of taste which distinguishes most modern Italian tributes to greatness. The author of the Divine Comedy, commemorated in stucco, even in a slumbering corner of Ravenna, is not sympathetic. Fortunately of all poets, he least needs a monument, as he was preeminently an architect in diction, and built himself his temple of fame in verses more solid than cyclopean blocks. If Dante's tomb is not Dante-esque, so neither is Byron's house Byronic, being a homely, shabby, two-storey dwelling directly on the street, with as little as possible of isolation and mystery. In Byron's time it was an inn, and it is rather a curious reflection that Cain and the Vision of Judgment should have been written at an hotel. The fact supplies a commanding precedent for self-abstraction, to tourists at once sentimental and literary. I must declare indeed that my acquaintance with Ravenna considerably increased my esteem for Byron and helped to renew my faith in the sincerity of his inspiration. A man so much de son temps as the author of the above-named and other pieces can have spent two long years in this stagnant city only by the help of taking a great deal of disinterested pleasure in his own genius. He had indeed a notable pastime, the various churches are adorned with monuments of ancestral guccioles. 
but it is nonetheless obvious that Ravenna, fifty years ago, would have been an intolerably dull residence to a foreigner of distinction unequipped with intellectual resources. The hour one spends with Byron's memory then is almost compassionate. After all, one says to oneself as one turns away from the grandiloquent little slab in front of his house and looks down the deadly provincial vista of the empty sunny street, the author of so many superb stanzas asked less from the world than he gave it. One of his diversions was to ride in the Pineta, which, beginning a couple of miles from the city, extends some twenty-five miles along the sands of the Adriatic. I drove out to it for Byron's sake, and Dante's, and Boccaccio's, all of whom have interwoven it with their fictions and for that of a possible whiff of coolness from the sea. Between the city and the forest, in the midst of malarious rice swamps, stands the finest of the Ravenais churches, the stately temple of San Apollinare in Calasse. The Emperor Augustus constructed hereabouts a harbour for fleets, which the ages have choked up, and which survives only in the title of this ancient church. Its extreme loneliness makes it doubly impressive. They opened the great doors for me and let a shaft of heated air go wander up the beautiful nave between the twenty-four lustrous pearly columns of Gipolino marble and mount the wide staircase of the choir and spend itself beneath the mosaics of the vault. I passed a memorable half-hour sitting in this wave of tempered light, looking down the cool grey avenue of the nave out of the open door at the vivid green swamps, and listening to the melancholy stillness. I rambled for an hour in the wood of associations, between the tall, smooth, silvery stems of the pines, and beside a creek which led me to the outer edge of the wood and a view of white sails gleaming and gliding behind the sand hills. It was infinitely, it was nobly quaint. But as the trees stand at wide intervals and bear far aloft in the blue air but a little parasol of foliage, I suppose that of a glaring summer day the forest itself was only the more characteristic of its clime and country for being perfectly shadeless. End of section thirty five.